morning. I hope you are all uh, blessed to feel blessed to be here this morning as we've worshipped God together, and that now as we prepare to hear from his word this morning, uh, may we take a moment to pause and uh, quiet our hearts before him and ask for his Holy Spirit to guide us uh, into understanding what he has for us today. So would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your presence here with us today. We pray, Lord, that you have been pleased and glorified by our worship, and that now, Lord, as we continue in this service, we pray that you would be pleased to pour your Holy Spirit uh, within us, Lord, in such a way that we could understand what you have for us through your word. I pray, God, that you would do something beyond what I am capable of and that you would speak to each heart. Uh, You know each circumstance and each uh, person's needs who's here this morning, Lord. And so I pray that as your word goes forth, it will do its intended work in each one of us. Uh, We also pray, Lord, that as we, your people, are made aware of the needs of others around us, that you would continue to uh, shape our hearts, Lord, uh, in compassion of how to respond and give us uh, wisdom and clarity, Lord, as we seek to do that in practical ways. And so we pray, Lord, that you would energize us to continually be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us in need. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would build up this church and that you would continue to see, uh, see your work done through this church, in this church, and that, Lord, through it you would be glorified. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning this word would be another uh, building block, Lord, another refueling and equipping to continuing that work. And so we receive this word, Lord, from you. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I speak this word. Give me, give me boldness, Lord. Give me clarity to speak this word the way you would have me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll begin this morning with a tale of a married couple whose son was still living, whose grown son, I should say, was still living at home with them and gave no indication whatsoever of having any plans to leave home. This might not sound familiar to anyone else here today, but it does happen, apparently. Nonetheless, this uh, married couple was quite eager to see their growing son find his way out of their house, and so they decided one day to conduct a test. They decided that to conduct this test, there were three key elements that they were going to use. First, they placed a $10 bill then a Bible, and finally a bottle of liquor on the front hall table. If he takes the money, said the father, he will be a businessman. If he takes the Bible, said the mother, he will be a pastor. But if he takes the liquor, said the father sadly, I'm afraid he'll become a drunk. Well, then, hiding themselves in the hall closet, they waited nervously for their son to arrive home. Peeping through the keyhole, they watched as he came through the door and saw the items on the table. First, he very quickly grabbed the $10 bill, snapped it, examined it in the light to make sure it was real, and then pocketed it. Aha! I knew it, said the father. There's business chops in him after all. He will be a businessman. Shh! Watch, said the mother, as next their son picked up the Bible and began leafing through it. He then took that as well. Ah, I knew it. He will be a pastor, said the mother. But then, quite unexpectedly, he also grabbed the bottle of liquor, and with all three items, walked towards his room. The father slapped his forehead and said, I, 
I can't believe it. It's worse than I ever could have thought. He's going to be a politician. <laughs> now, unfortunately, sometimes it's far too easy to pick on our politicians, isn't it? Especially at a time of year like this, when it seems like there's so much ammunition lying around. Right in the middle of a political campaign, all three parties are actively trying to bring out the dirty laundry of the opposition, aren't they? And so, rather than the platforms or the good things that they're hoping to do, more often than not, we hear all of the bad things and the negativity and the smearing that goes on. And so, in a time like this, it's incredibly easy to become cynical, jaded, and just plain fed up with politicians. Uh, a man by the name of Will Rogers once made this very astute observation. He said, the more you observe politics, the more you have to admit that each party is worse than the other. Try not to think too hard about that one. It'll make your head hurt. You see, while we tend to become quite animated in debating the pros and cons of one political leader or party versus another, and that's one of those old taboos, right, is... If, if you want to get into a fight, or if you don't want to get into a fight, don't discuss religion or politics, right? And so when we do start discussing politics, we tend to get quite worked up. And we can see that on the news on any given night. We see people um, worked up, angry, shouting, all those sorts of things, debating one viewpoint over another. And though we can get all worked up debating which leader or which party is our preferable candidate, I believe one of the underlying reasons that we can so easily become angry or cynical about our political leadership is because whether we realize it or not, we all desire to have a perfect leader. We all desire to have a leader who will reign in righteousness and rule with perfect justice. We all desire leaders who are beyond corruption. We desire leaders who are not in it for self-interest or gain, but those who are truly in it to serve those beneath them. And so this desire is wired within each one of us. But of course, in this fallen world, we know that there is no such thing as a perfect leader, political or otherwise. Name the greatest leaders of history, and you will still discover flaws. And so here in this search for the perfect leader, we find that there can only be one. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 1, Isaiah prophesies of the future day when the perfect king, the perfect ruler, will sit on the throne. There he writes this. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Now this messianic prophecy is of course referring to and fulfilled by none other than, than Jesus Christ. It is only when Jesus Christ is given full rule over our lives that we can experience inner peace and security that transcends our outer circumstances. No president or prime minister or premier can give you that. For how can a heart that is designed for the perfect rule of Jesus Christ ever be content with the imperfect rule of man? As Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In essence, without Christ's rule over your life, there can be no lasting peace in your heart. Do you believe that? Without Christ's rule over your life, there can be no lasting peace within your heart. 
Why do you think that so many people are discontent with their lives today? Why are so many people dissatisfied, troubled, worked up, depressed, and everything else in between? Perhaps is it that they are looking for someone else out there to supply something within them that is impossible for them to do? They're looking to a political leader or someone else in their life to fulfill that inner need? Something that only Jesus Christ can do. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Jesus is the only perfect ruler and king. He is the leader that our hearts are searching for. So let me ask you, who is ruling over your life and your heart today? Yes, we have a physical prime minister. Yes, we have a premier. Yes, we can go down the ladder of the political leaders in our land right down to our mayor. But in reality, none of those leaders, good or bad, can fill that within your heart which you most need, inner peace. Only Jesus can provide that. So who is ruling in your heart today? Are you submitting to Jesus' full authority? Are you looking to him for protection? Or do you think that you or some other leader can do a better job? Well, that's exactly what happened to the southern kingdom of Judah approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ in the time of the prophet Isaiah. Now, to give you a little bit of background, the political situation of Isaiah's day was every bit as volatile as the ours is in the world today, if not even more so. The Assyrian Empire was on the rise at this point in history, and the southern kingdom of Judah had already been separated from the northern kingdom of Israel in a civil war. Israel has already been overrun. Judah is the last holdout of the Assyrian Empire, and they're in a very precarious situation. Now, to make matters worse in this period of time, they've suffered much at the hands of their own foolish and evil rulers and kings. And now the mighty Assyrian Empire is threatening to overrun their tiny nation. And so where will they look for help? Where will they turn to for protection? Well, rather than turning to God, the leaders of Judah attempted to forge a military alliance with Egypt. And in response to this attempt, the Lord speaks to the people through Isaiah In chapter 31 and verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Who rely on horses. Who trust in the multitude of their chariots. And in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Or seek help from the Lord. Here we see Israel turning to a foreign nation. A pagan nation for help. Rather than turning to the Lord. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where do I turn to for protection in times of trouble? Where do I go to for help when I am in need? Do you go down to Egypt or do you look up to the Lord? Now thankfully, when we do choose to look up to the Lord, when we do truly and fully submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, Not only does he give us peace in the present, but also the promise that one day he will return and we will finally live in the physical reality of his presence as the perfect leader here on earth. And so as we look forward to that day, we must fix our hearts on the reality that though there are different types and stripes of leaders in our world today, and of course we we have good leaders, we have not so good leaders, and we have terrible leaders We, of course, want to have good leaders, and we want to try to do what we can to encourage and put good leaders in place. But even in this, we must recognize 
that there is only one perfect leader, and he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is Jesus Christ. And as the church, we must look to him, not to a political party or leader, to fix what is wrong with our world today. Jesus is the answer. And no matter what politicians want to tell us today of what they're going to do to fix things, we know that no matter what they do, no matter how well-intentioned they are, God is the answer. And we have to point people to him. And we must follow him ourselves and follow him wholeheartedly. And so as we look to Jesus, the perfect leader, to, uh, to not only serve and follow him, but to also seek to be like him. And this is the second lesson for us this morning, is that good leaders follow the perfect leader's example. Now, Jesus is the only perfect leader, but he does not rule alone. Take note of the second half of verse 1 in chapter 32. It says, See, a king will reign in righteousness, referring to the Lord Jesus. And then it says, And rulers will rule with justice. Other translations say, And princes will rule with justice. This is inferring that Jesus will have other leaders, princes underneath him, working under his authority, working within his kingdom administration, as it were. And though the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will be after Jesus' return in the millennial kingdom in his reign, there is also an application for any who would be leaders in the present day as well. The most obvious application is for church leadership, those who are serving in God's kingdom administration pastors, elders, council members, etc. But now, I would also suggest that whether in an official leadership capacity or not, every Christian, every believer who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God has been gifted for some area of leadership. Now, that might strike some of you as odd. You might say to me, Danny, I'm no leader. I am as far in the shadows as someone can possibly be. And to you, I would say, we must remember what leadership looks like in God's kingdom. It is entirely different than what leadership looks like in our earthly kingdoms today. Leadership in God's kingdom is servanthood. Jesus set the example for us. Remember, he washed his disciples' feet. Leadership in Jesus' economy is with the towel and with the wash basin. Leadership is service. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit is within you. He has gifted you for service. And so in some way, shape, or form, he is calling upon you to lead in your area of service. Whether that's in the church, whether that's in your family, whether that's in your workplace, or some other sphere of influence, God has called you to lead where he has equipped you to serve. And so take up the wash basin and towel and follow the example of Jesus. As we do so, we can experience some measure of the blessings described in the next seven verses in this present age as well. Verse 2, I want to focus your attention on for the next few moments this morning. If you turn there, verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 32, we read this very key verse. It says that in that day, each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and a shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Here we see three main pictures of what God's kind of leader looks like. Three images that we can focus our attention on today of all of those princes, leaders, servants who will follow in God's kingdom. 
the three R's for us this morning for our consideration from this verse is this. They will be like a refuge, a river, and a rock. Let's focus on the first one, a refuge. Now, in times of peace and security, places of refuge are usually overlooked. For example, who here remembers the fear of of the, the Soviet Empire in the height of the Cold War? Who here remembers, you know, having a real sense of anxiety when the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on? Does anyone remember that time in our history? It's not really, it's not all that long ago, is it? It it feels like distant history, but in the grand sphere of world history, it's just yesterday. And in that day and age, during this height of the Cold War, anxiety over nuclear holocaust is a very real thing. Building underground bunkers in case of nuclear warfare was not seen as a luxury, but as a necessity. And as a result, billions upon billions of dollars were invested in their construction. However, over the past couple of decades, with the threat of nuclear war seemingly remote, and their intended purpose as a place of refuge no longer needed, many of those bunkers have been decommissioned and turned into tourist attractions, or even some of them I've seen have been converted into condos for public use. You can go and buy a piece of uh, Cold War underground condo for yourself, and some people who have the money have actually gone and done that. And so we see that today, something that was valued only a few short decades ago as essential is now seen as a no big deal. We shrug. Places of refuge are no longer seen as important. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verses 9 to 10, he talks there about how false security leads to complacency. Listen to what he writes. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel so secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. The people of Judah had a false sense of security in their own ability to provide for and to protect themselves. And this created within them a sense of complacency towards Isaiah's dire warnings. Things had been so good for so long that they believed they would never change. But just as then, the danger for us now is that in our peace, in our prosperity, we develop a false sense of security. We develop a false sense of security in our own abilities to provide and protect ourselves. And so too, just like Judah, we can become complacent. We begin to believe that we have achieved these things solely by our own effort and not as a gift from God. And we also believe that like Judah, things will never change. They will always stay the same. Now, in this immediate area, for example, farmers have had three, if not four, excellent harvests in a row. And we're bringing in another great harvest this year. The only comments I've heard this year when I ask how the, how the crops are looking is... Not quite as good as last year, but last year was exceptional, so this is still pretty good, right? So no one's really complaining. We've had another good harvest after consecutive great harvests in a row. So what does that mean? We're just the best farmers in the world, right? That's what it means, right? It's it's all about us. Clarny and area has the best farmers in the world. That's why this is happening, right? Or am I wrong? Is there something else that I'm missing? Could it be... 
that God has blessed us and we need to look to Him as the giver of this good gift. But what if there were three or four crop failures in a row? What then? What if there was a drought? Where would people turn to for shelter from that wind? In the realm of protection, the last military battle that was fought on Canadian soil was a whopping 130 years ago. Over a century, this land has experienced peace. No warfare has happened within these borders for 130 years. To us, war and violence and and the fear of having people attack and, and seize your property and carry off your family, those things only happen in foreign lands. Those threats only happen in places like Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Peace in our land is something that we take as a foregone conclusion. But for many of us, not that long ago, our ancestors in Russia experienced the violence, upheaval, and all of the threats of the Bolshevik Revolution. And as a result, they became refugees, escaping many of them with only their lives. And they had to leave everything behind and set sail for an unknown land. Thankfully, those ancestors of ours found refuge in this land of Canada. And we today, I am the beneficiary of that. The fact that though my ancestors had to flee for their lives, losing everything, that here I am today, receiving the blessing of them having found refuge in this great land. And so, as we look from afar from our position of security at the plight of refugees in the world today, are there some who may yet find in us a place of refuge from the storm? My hope and prayer is that it will be so. For as Jesus said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Where would the Mennonite people be if we as strangers had not been welcomed in? And so we are called to go and do likewise. May our church, hearts, and homes be always ready and willing to provide a place of refuge for those in need. Secondly, we are to be like a river. Verse 2, like streams of water in the desert. Now this example is extremely practical. Deserts are dry and thirsty places. A place where dehydration, heat exhaustion, and death can come quickly. Some of you might have heard the tragic story from the news this past August. A French couple and their nine-year-old son went hiking in the over 100 degrees Fahrenheit heat in the White Sands National Monument in New Mexico. They were on a 4.6-mile hiking trail that has no trees or shade along the path of any kind whatsoever. And going out on this hike in the middle of the day in the blazing heat, they only took with them two small bottles of water between the three of them. When the mother finally decided to turn back to the car, the father and son continued on. Shortly after turning back, the mother succumbed to heat stroke and collapsed. Up ahead, the father became disoriented. They left the trail, ended up rolling down a sand dune. When searchers eventually discovered them sometime later, the father had also succumbed to heat stroke and had passed away. However, the nine-year-old boy lying next to his father was still alive. The sheriff reported that the likely reason he had survived is that for every sip of water the parents had taken, they had given their son two. The tragic lesson is that in the desert, 
Water is life. Take it for granted, and it could cost you yours. The servant leader is to be like a river of life, giving water to those who are on the brink of death. On the practical level, Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, you will certainly not lose your reward. On the spiritual level, we can safely say that all around us, people are hiking along in a spiritual desert without water. And like the French couple, most are woefully oblivious to how dangerous their situation really is. But this is where we have the tremendous privilege and opportunity of pointing people to the source of living water for their souls. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus called out to the crowd, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. My friends, if Jesus lives in you, then out of your soul can flow rivers of living water. The sort of living water that can give life to those who are hiking along in the wilderness on the brink of dehydration and death. This is what Jesus has given us. And so if Jesus lives in you, you have his water to share. May we always be ready to do so. To be a river, to be a life-giving stream in a dry and thirsty land. Finally, we are to be like a rock. Verse 2 continues, the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Following along the same line of thought, nothing is better than shade on a scorching hot day. I don't know about any of you, but you remember those really hot weeks we had back this summer where it got up to 35 and 36 degrees? How many of you went out and worked in the garden in the dead heat of the day with no shade? Anyone? (laughs) Probably not, right? Where were you? Inside with the air conditioning, right? Or at the very least, if you even went to the beach in that kind of a heat, you were up amongst the trees in the shade or in the water. No one likes to be out in the scorching heat in the dead heat of day with the sun blazing down. And so in that kind of a heat, if you're out in the wilderness and all you have is a rock to find shade under, you are very thankful for the shadow of that great rock. And so as we think about that in practical terms... One of the things that I find interesting with this example is that typically when someone talks about shade, they're not talking about a rock providing shade. They usually refer to a tree providing shade. But given that this passage is talking about godly leaders, we can quickly see why. While a tree is nice, a tree can easily be chopped down or destroyed by fire. Whereas a great rock will not be moved nor bothered by wind, rain, or fire. And the Psalms name God as the rock of our salvation. And Jesus is referred to in the New Testament in various places as the cornerstone and foundation of our faith and all who believe in him. His word and truth is unchanging and will stand forever. Therefore, the only way for a leader to be compared to a great rock is if they are firmly anchored to God and his unchanging word. In verse 6, the ungodly leader, the one who has strayed away from God's way, is described like this. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. 
Let me ask you, how many leaders are there today spreading error concerning the things of the Lord? Sadly, there are more than a few. And for whatever reason, they feel the need to untether themselves from the truth of God's word and compromise with the world's wisdom. Perhaps thinking that by watering down the truth, they will make it more attractive to the masses. Perhaps if we just take a step or two from the unchangeable word of God, we can relate better and people will want to come in. But the danger in doing so is that when we step away from God's word to try to to win people in, what we win them with is what we are winning them for. And if we win them with anything less than the full truth of God's word, we are winning them for something less. And if we're going to try to do the bait and switch and and bring people in with a watered-down version of the gospel and then say, here's the full meal deal, what are they going to say? You've deceived me. This is a harder thing than I could accept. And Jesus never worked that way. Jesus always confronted people with the hard truth up front. Count the cost if you are willing to follow me. He never used a bait-and-switch tactic. He always stood firmly upon the truth of God's word. Yes, he met people where they were at with compassion, but he always held firm to the truth of God's word, and so too must we. We must hold firm if we are to be compared to a great rock in a dry and thirsty land. Now, one of the things that we see is that when people depart from God's word, The reality of it is this. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. How can a sinner know that he needs to repent if he is told there is no such thing as sin? Now, of course, holding firm to the great rock of God and his truth is seldom popular. And people in the desert even begin to resent the great rock. They will rail out against it. They will attack it as though it were the enemy. But little do they realize that though they might resent God's truth, though they might resent God's way, the great rock of God's unchangeable truth is still providing them with shade. Think about it. In this land, if it were not for the Judeo-Christian principles that govern the law of our land, there would be so many things things that we take for granted that we are still the recipients of, even if we resent them. The rule of law. All of these sort of things that stem from God's way. And so as we think of this, it is still providing shade even when we want to rail against it. And so we look at it as the fixed point of reference, that no matter how far from its shade we run, God's truth will stand. And little does our secular culture realize that the moment we completely eradicate God and his way from our country and from our culture, that is the moment we bring destruction on our own heads. And so like a great rock, may we courageously stand firm upon God and his truth, even if it makes us unpopular, even if it makes us the target of those who would stand opposed to it, may we stand firm. And so today as we look to the perfect leader, may we seek to be like him, the refuge, the river, and the rock. And may we rest in the knowledge that though our earthly leaders and our protectors may fail us, our God, our refuge, And our protector will never fail us. He is able and he will do what he has promised. I'm going to conclude this morning with a true story shared by an author by the name of Kay Hughes who shares this story. 
It was Christmas Eve, 1875, and Ira Sankey was traveling on a Delaware River steamboat when he was recognized as the song leader of the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. And if you flip through our songbooks, you can still find today songs composed by Ira Sankey. And so Sankey was recognized, and the people crowded around him and said, Sing us one of your popular hymns. But Sankey, the humble man that he was, said that he preferred to sing another composer's song, that by the name of William B. Bradbury. His favorite hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. So he began to sing, and as he sang, one of the stanzas began, We are thine, do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And when he finished that line, a man stepped forward from the shadows and asked him, Did you ever serve in the Union Army? Why, yes, Ira replied, in the spring of 1860. Can you remember if you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in spring of 1862? Yes, Sankey answered, now very much surprised. So did I, continued the man, but I was not with the Union Army, I was serving with the Confederate Army. When I saw you standing at your post, I thought to myself, that fellow will never get away alive. I raised my musket and I took dead aim. I was standing in the shadow, completely concealed. You were oblivious to my presence, while the full light of the moon was falling upon you. And at that instant, as I was about to squeeze the trigger, just as moments ago, you raised your eyes to heaven and began to sing. Let him sing his song to the end, I said to myself. I can shoot him afterwards. He's my victim at all events, and my bullet cannot miss. But the song you sang then was the same song you just sang now, I heard the words perfectly. We are thine, do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And those words stirred up many memories for me in that moment. And I thought of my mother singing that song to us at our bedside. When you had finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim again. And I thought to myself, the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be a great and mighty God and my arm of its own accord dropped limp at my side. Ira Sankey was protected by God on a day and an instant when he was oblivious to the danger he was in. And yet God protected him in that moment and also worked in another man's life. Today we live in a time and place where we recognize that there are dangers all around in the world. Perhaps we sit here today oblivious to dangers that could await us, But we need not think of that with fear, for we can face whatever dangers are out there with confidence that God, who is our protector, the guardian of our way, goes before us, the perfect leader who we can put full trust and confidence in, that we can follow him completely, holding nothing back, that we need not fear providing refuge to the stranger, we need not fear providing water to the thirsty, for we know that in whatever we do for him, he will reward us. He will bless us. He will protect us to whatever end. And that we know that in the end, ultimately, the promise is sure. We will see him sitting on the throne of this earth. His kingdom will reign forever. And we will live in the answer to the prayer of the Lord's Prayer, which has been prayed millions of times. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And today, my friends, that is our mandate, to live on this earth as though his full kingdom has already come, holding nothing back. 
So may we do so with everything that we've got, knowing that this opportunity to lead and to serve is the only one that will ever be given. So may we make the most of it as we follow our perfect leader, the Lord Jesus. Father God, we thank you that though earthly leaders, though men, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how good they may be, we know that they are still imperfect. We know that they will still fail us. And that, Lord, even as we who have been entrusted with leadership are humbled by this thought that no matter how hard we work or try, we are still imperfect. But we thank you, God, that as we look to you, as we look to the Lord Jesus, the perfect leader, we find everything that we need. We find in you the perfect example. We find in you peace in our hearts. We find in you strength for the day and hope for tomorrow. And so, Lord, as we seek to follow your example, we know that this isn't something that we can do through our own strength or through our own ability or power, but it must be done by you, in you, and through you. And so, may you so fill our hearts. May you so take control of our lives that whatever we do, in word or in deed, it will be done through you and for you, and that you would receive the honor, the glory, and the praise. And, Lord, through it, may you establish and further your kingdom until we see you face to face, we will bow down, we will cast our crowns down at your feet and say, you are worthy, the lamb that was slain is now glorified forever and evermore. We look forward to that day and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until that day, give us the power to serve you fully. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.